Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 27, I interview Stephen Mads, the co-founder and CEO of Essient a management consulting firm that grew 65% last financial year to do over $16 million in annual revenue, making Essient the number 10 fastest growing new business in Australia. We discuss how he went from being an engineer in the army to a PhD researcher to starting and selling his own boutique consulting firm before doing a MBA at Harvard. How the MBA at Harvard changed his life and how he came back to Australia with renewed energy and passion to build a -a one-of-a-kind, employee-owned consulting firm. If you are looking for help translating your vision and ideas into practice and having them delivered through people, projects and technology, check out essient.com.au. That's E-S-C-I-E-N-T dot com dot A-U. Okay, so I'm here with Stephen Mabs, the CEO of Essient. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thanks, Derek. Good to be with you. That's good. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started Essient? What did you study? What type of roles or companies were you working in? Yeah, actually, I've had uh, quite a a varied background, actually. Um, So I initially studied electronics engineering. Um, I always found when I was a kid, I was uh, interested in electronics and computers and, um, you know, would go down to uh, Dick Smith's and Tandy's after school muck around with the computers down there and programming them and so on. So so by the time I got to year 12 and I was making my career choice, um, electronics engineering seemed like a kind of a logical and a, an exciting career stream for me. So that's what I selected. Then when I was at uni, uh, partway through my studies, a few mates that I'd gone to school with and I who were all studying different courses, but we all decided to, uh, in a brave moment, sign up for the Army Reserve. So we all ended up joining the university regiment. Um, uh, so we were doing that also while we were studying and I and, uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. You know, it was exciting. You'd go away for weekends and training and camping and, you know, learning all about weapons and all this kind of stuff, which as a, as a young bloke uh, I found fascinating. Um, so, that so kind were of you the one who kind of raised your hand in your friendship group? Were you the, the leader or did someone else say, hey, let's do it? Because obviously it's a bit of an interesting sort of move, I, I guess, depending on your perspective. What, 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 who was the person or what was the moment where you were all sitting around and you said, hey, let's do this? And then everyone else said, yeah, me too. And then you actually followed through. Yeah, I remember uh, we were all talking about it one day, actually, and, and we were going to go along to an information session at Karakata. I was in Perth uh, where mm-hmm. I grew up. At Karakata, there was an information session, and, and I remember one of my mates, Michael Pope, actually saying, you know what, if they ask us to sign on the dotted line tonight, he said, I'm doing it. And then we all said, yep, let's do it. So, you know, <laughs> we weren't signing our life away for six years or anything, but but uh, that was kind of the bravado that got us all to, to sign up. I think it was that night. So, um, and, you know, and I, I really enjoyed that. But so, so I guess uh, that was what really got me interested in the Army, um, you know, having such a great experience while I was studying. I decided uh, at the end of my studies or near the end of my studies that I actually wanted to join the regular Army. And I saw there was an ad, I think I saw at the time, that the Army was recruiting for uh, graduate engineers uh, and also offering scholarships. Uh, so for about the last year, I had a scholarship for my uh, four-year degree. 
Um, coincidentally, my dad was in the army and so was his dad and so was his dad, but uh, that wasn't the reason I joined. I just joined it because I actually liked it, not, mm. not because I felt I had a tradition I had to continue or anything like that. Um, so, uh, but, you know, I, I, the whole army life kind of suited me. I'd been in Cubs and Scouts and Venturers and I loved the outdoor life and and uh, with my army reserve experience, it seemed like a, a great fit. So, so I did join the regular army and then when I finished my studies, my engineering degree, the four years, uh, I was posted to Melbourne uh, where I, I did a, a couple of postings there in the army uh, and I found that actually really stretched me. I, I moved away from home for the first time. I didn't know anybody in Melbourne um, and as a junior officer in my first posting, I, I really felt like I was thrown in the deep end. Um, you know, I had about uh, 80 people uh, reporting to me in my first year which seems ridiculous, really, <laughs> and it was. Um, so there were a lot of people who were looking up to me and and I didn't really have much idea about what I was doing um, and I just hoped that it wasn't too obvious to them. It was a, sort of a classic uh, case of imposter syndrome, really. <laughs> um, but luckily for me, I had a really good um, a second-in-command, uh, a warrant officer called Dick Turner, who was a really good mentor and a steady pair of hands and... Uh, he sort of uh, guided me through a few tricky situations. Um, like when, you know, being responsible for for soldiers, you know, um, kind of life situations come up that you, you need to deal with. And and we had some tough ones, I remember. Like one one of the soldiers, had, he and his wife had lost a, a baby to sudden infant death syndrome, which mm-hmm. was tragic. Um, and I remember visiting him at his home and... Um, and it was just, oh, it was just heartbreaking, really, and 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 having to kind of try and console him and and let him know that he could take as much time off as he needed to before coming back to work. Um, uh, that was that was tough. I had another soldier who who went AWOL. He decided uh, that uh, he had enough one uh, one weekend and and didn't come back to work. Anyway, he ended up changing his mind and he fronted up. But then I had to defend him um, in a summary trial before our commanding officer and so I was now a lawyer as well <laughs> um, <laughs> so so um, and then and then I remember after about oh, six months of being in the army the chief of the army uh, visited us uh, at our unit and uh, and he was uh, you know a veteran of about 35 years and you could just tell he was a tough guy mm. and he was asking some tough questions <laughs> as well <laughs> it was very, I personally found it very intimidating. So, and this is all in my first year, you know, as a junior officer. So, I wasn't prepared for any of this. But um, you know, you just got to try and learn quickly on the job, and that's what I tried to do. So, but I, but I do remember thinking up until that point how how sheltered my life was. Um, so, did they sort of fast track you because you had a couple of years' experience in the reserves? Like you said, you're kind of fresh out, like most grads. Uh, you know, in the corporate world after uni, are probably doing photocopying and coffee runs. But you're leading 80 junior junior people in the army. Was that your experience? Was that just something that they saw something in you and they said, "Hey, we'll give this young guy a go," and it's up to him to, to make it work? Or why do you think you had no, so many I think people actually, so fast? Yeah, no, look, I think that, Derek, that's actually the way uh, all junior officers get thrown in the deep end. I don't think there was anything special about me. In fact, I think I was pretty unspecial, actually. <laughs> but um, but no, I think as a junior officer in the military, you know, you do get thrown some big challenges and you are expected to, to grow up and develop quickly. Um, and, you know, even though I'd come in as a direct entry officer, I was an engineer, so I'd sort of joined up the quick way rather mm-hmm. than uh, going through a year or four years of military training. Um, 
you know, we, we weren't uh, treated really any differently. Uh, we were kind of expected to, to get on with it the same as everyone else. Um, so, uh, I met my wife, Martha in the army as well. Mm-hmm. Um, she was, uh, one of the first people, actually the first person I met when I, when I got posted to Melbourne, mm-hmm. uh, she was also a junior officer. So we, we kind of, uh, shared that experience together. Um, but then, uh, after I've been in the army a while, I, um, I wanted to kind of get back and do some more study actually. So I started a part-time masters while I was in the army, but I found, you know, with a full-time workload, um, of uh, soldiering, I didn't really have much time to spend on that. So after, um, a couple of postings, I decided I wanted to go back to uni full time. So I left and, uh, and went and did a PhD at Melbourne uni. Uh, and that was, uh, in, um, multiprocessor computer performance modeling. Um, so I'd kind of had this, <laughs> I kind of felt like I had this, uh, parallel universe going on, you know, part of me, you know, liked the excitement of the military life, but part of me also, um, you know, like academic, um, sort of interests and, and research and all that kind of stuff. You know, part of me wanted to be an engineer. And, and uh, anyway, the engineer part uh, was was kind of the, the priority for me. So so I did this PhD at Melbourne Uni. And then when I was near the end of that, um, spotted a uh, an ad for uh, the Defence Science and Technology Organisation, which actually um, really appealed to me because I could sort of combine my defence interests um, as well as... Uh, research interests. So I uh, ended up taking a job with them and uh, moving across to Adelaide um, from Melbourne. So I was in Adelaide the first time uh, in the early 90s and worked there for three years on a big radar project called the Jindalee uh, Operational uh, Radar Network, the JORN project, um, uh, which some people have heard of, but it's a pretty interesting uh, radar system long-range radar system, and I was working in um, radar signal processing and tracking performance, um, so it's a pretty interesting area for me as, a, as an engineer. And then uh, probably around about that time, I think it was in 91, um, um, Telstra had been awarded uh, the prime contract to build two more of these radars, and um, it was a pretty exciting time out in industry. So I ended up leaving uh, DSTO, and um, moved to Melbourne to work with Telstra on this project that was supposed to run for, um, I don't know, six years, I think, and ended up running for about 12. But anyway, that's, you know, typical <laughs> of a few projects in defence. But but it was a really interesting project, mm. actually. Um, and, uh, and I loved it. it probably, you know, the project that I learned the most from, um, got to work with some amazing people. Um, so it was around about that time that I started my first company, and uh, that company was called Permian, so P-E-R-M-I-A-N. Um, people, you know, always ask me, where did you get that name from? And, um, you know, if you've ever tried to look for a company name, all the good ones are taken. <laughs> so you have to you have to kind of come up with something original. And I liked it because it was a period in time when uh, a lot of um, Australian uh, animals uh, first evolved, actually. And uh, mm but I didn't do my research because that period ended with a mass extinction event, which (laughs) I probably should have realized. But, um, 
yeah, my sister reckoned it sounded like a hairdressing salon, so she always used to ask me if anyone had rung, rung up to make an appointment yet. But anyway. <laughs> and so what was the nature of that business? So, so again, you've had some interesting experiences in the Army, working very interesting yeah. engineering projects, a little bit of private sector slash um, government sort of partnerships. And then um, what was that first business and what was the idea sort of behind? Was it a bit of a weekend hobby or did you sort of quit what you were doing and start that initial business? Yeah, it's interesting. I sort of fell into it actually because um, when I first set up the company, it was it was my my wife and I who set it up together. It was really just me doing uh, contract work mm-hmm. uh, on the John project, um, and then uh, a, a, co- a colleague of mine that I'd worked with previously was looking for work, uh, and I managed to find him some work on the same project, and it sort of grew very slowly actually over about twelve years um, to about thirty people. Um, and I set up an Adelaide office partway through that time as well because there was a lot of defence work happening in Adelaide and we mm-hmm. wanted to kind of diversify a bit. Um, but I remember going through some growing pains, you know, as you as you start out in any business, you know, if it's just yourself, you're kind of in a sweet spot, but then you start employing other people and you kind of, you feel the pressure of responsibility, you know, they've got mortgages to pay and and so you, you, you realise that, you know, kind of pressure is, is on you to, to be their leader effectively. And um, and then, you know, you need to also uh, look at overheads. So um, maybe, a, you know, a full-time person who's non-billing and, and a, an office and all these sorts of things. So, you know, just when you sort of think you're in the next sweet spot, you know, some more sort of challenges come along, opening a new office and that sort of thing. Um, but luckily I had some real, I mean, we had a great team in that company. So I had some really good people working for us. Um, there was a guy called Graham Trevitt who was my office manager um, when it all sort of, uh, when we were big enough that, um, you know, uh, my wife uh, couldn't do the invoices and the payroll tax and the super and all that sort of stuff anymore. Um, we hired Graham initially part-time, but then he, he quickly went full-time. But he was just amazing, you know. He was, had such great attention to detail and just really kind of held everything together while we focused on on doing the engineering work engineering consulting work on defense projects um and then so uh we had that company for about um i think we're about 11 years in actually and then um i had this phone call out of the blue from a guy called uh, keith reed seema uh, from a company called venture alliances in melbourne and he called me up and he said he introduced himself and he said uh oh, look, uh, I understand a bit about your company. I've done some research um, and I wanted to talk to you about uh, an opportunity uh, to merge with another company or to um, or to be acquired by another company. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and I'd had a couple of people kicking the tyres over the years and um, I was a bit cynical actually and, and I thought this was, you know, really just a waste of time so but anyway he was persistent and we ended up meeting in Melbourne and um, I was pretty impressed I didn't even know there were guys like this out there you know who analyze companies and Mm. look at M&A strategies even though they've really got nothing to do with the actual companies they're just industry analysts and that's what he was and he knew a lot about my company and he also knew a lot about another company called SMS management and technology and uh, which I'd heard of before because a couple Mm -hmm. of people I'd known had worked there um, and he explained to me why he thought it would be a good idea for us to get our companies together. And um, I remember thinking, um, you know, things like this don't really happen to guys like me, but, <laughs> you know, let's have the discussion anyway. So he set up a meeting 
with SMS and uh, I went in and um, that's when I first met uh, a fellow by the name of Tom Stianos, uh, whose name you'll hear a couple of times through this story because uh, I've had quite a long relationship with Tom. Um, and I remember in the first meeting, again, thinking, you know, this is not really probably going to happen and, you know, what, what are we doing here sort of thing. So it ended up being a very productive meeting because I just sort of laid it all out. I said, well, you know, we're about 11 years old, 11 and a half years old. Um, this is where we are at the moment, an office in Adelaide, one in Melbourne. These are this is the projects we're working on. These are all the challenges I'm having at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is how I'm addressing them and just kind of got it all out. And Tom, um, you know, I found he was kind of like me, actually. He was very open about um, SMS, um, where the company was at. You know, they had some ups and downs with the whole sausage history, sausage software, um, and, uh, you know, with the dot-com crash mm-hmm. and, you know, Tom had rebuilt the company. And um, so that had some challenges, but uh, we're performing quite well and they were looking to expand. And anyway, we this meeting, I think, went for about three hours in the end. And um, I remember thinking at the end of it, actually, it's it sounds like it's probably a win-win. You know, it sounds like a good idea. And... Um, and I remember thinking too after that that, you know, it wasn't just a win-win, you know, we weren't just looking at it financially. And I think there's a lot of M&A stuff that goes on in our industry where people look at deals and they look at, you know, smashing together two P&Ls and two balance sheets um, and, and looking at synergies, you know, cost synergies or top line market synergies and so on. And without really sort of also thinking about, you know, what are the opportunities for staff and, and what does it mean for clients and all this kind of thing. And, um, and I remember, um, um, when, when I, um, was thinking about doing this deal, I I did think about it from the point of view of our staff and I thought actually it would really, um, result in some great opportunities for them to, to travel, um, which some of them ended up doing to kind of expand what they were working on from maybe just, you know, um, systems engineering to move into project management and business Mm -hmm. analysis and those sorts of things. And, um, so we ended up, uh, after we did the, the mating dance together f- uh, for a few months, we ended up um, uh, signing a deal. And uh, after all of the due diligence in uh, January uh, 2007, uh, Permian became part of SMS. And um, that was a great company. You know, I loved SMS. Um, I w- ended up working there for eight years, well past my initial sort of uh, two-year um, golden handcuffs that I had. Mm-hmm. And I never really had any intention of leaving. Um, um, and um, and and in uh, 2013, after I'd been there for, I think, about six years, um, I wanted to – I'd kind of been in the same role the whole time I was at SMS. I was a regional director in South Australia with some other um, extracurricular uh, sort of things. But I reported to Tom as the CEO – but I spoke with Tom and I said I was keen to to kind of do some more study, actually. I'd never done an MBA, for example. Mm-hmm. And Tom was very supportive as well. Um, so he uh, encouraged me to actually look um, worldwide, in fact, uh, for the best course that was really going to suit me. Um, and like a true consultant, I, I did a requirements analysis and <laughs> I had a look at all of the courses that were available, and you know, INSEAD and Stanford and you know, London Business School mm-hmm. and you name it. Um, and I decided on the, the Harvard uh, Advanced Management Program. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, I did that course in, uh, in late 2014, um, 
which, you know, was life-changing uh, for me. Uh, and also since then, I've done the um, company director's course uh, through AICD, uh, which was also a, a great course as well. And what so that was kind the biggest, of, uh, um, is it like life-changing is obviously a very uh, glowing testimonial. So, so what in particular, if there was a, one or two takeaways that you got from that Harvard uh, MBA experience um, that sort of stood out or shifted your thinking, um, what was that? Yeah, that's a good question, actually, uh, Derek. Um, I guess for me, the two things uh, probably were, one of them was the case method. They use what they call the case method, which means uh, all of the classes in these eight subject areas that you study, all of the classes are taught using an actual real-world case. Um, so they teach you what they want to teach you through the execution of something that actually happened, you know, mm. what went right, what went wrong. And then, uh, you know, they've got an amazing pull. They end up wheeling in the, the, the CEO uh, of the company at the time and say, now, you, you know, you get to uh, you know, ask uh, him or her, uh, you know, why they did the things they did and, you know, what, how did it turn out and all that. So it was an amazing experience from that point of view. And they start out, started out with simple cases because they're trying to sort of get you to, um, you know, build your pattern recognition skills. And then they worked up to more and more complex cases that may involve you know, complex financial restructuring, marketing, leadership, um, accounting, um, um, the whole bit. So uh, so that was really good. The case method I thought was really quite effective actually. Um, and I can remember probably most of the cases that we studied uh, while I was there. Um, and the other part of it was uh, the thing I really liked about that course, and this is one of the reasons I selected it, was uh, because there was a, a very strong personal development component. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the courses had the, the professional sort of knowledge. Um, but this one also had, you know, a, a values survey and 360 reviews and all that sort of stuff that got done beforehand. Uh, and then they had a counsellor there who worked with you through the course to give you this feedback and, um, you know, tell you everything that was wrong with you. No, that that's <laughs> not, not quite right, but you know what I mean. Uh, just kind of, mm. you know, unpack some of your strengths and weaknesses. And and for me, actually, uh, I I hadn't had um, prior to then a lot of feedback personally mm -hmm. uh, through my career on on how I was perceived and 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 my performance. So I found that to be quite valuable as well. And was there a particular thing they said, you're great at this, focus on this, you're weak at this, maybe delegate or minimise that? Or, or do you remember some of those insights that sort of maybe stood out? Yeah, they gave me uh, a few big thick reports, but I do actually remember reading um, some of the, the 360 reviews uh, because you get to pick who you, who you uh, want in sort of four different categories. So it was, you know, people who reported to me, not necessarily directly, mm -hmm. um, my peers, my uh, seniors, and also you could choose the fourth category and I chose a number of clients. Mm. And I remember when I was reading those reviews, um, um, you know, there were some things about me that um, I really appreciated them saying that I hadn't really kind of um, uh, really understood before, um, some positive things as well. Um, but the people I chose, particularly those who were um, my subordinates, um, who I chose, I, I selected them because I knew they would be, uh, they would have an opinion and they wouldn't be afraid to share it, mm. even though it was anonymous. Um, they were all kind of blended in together. But mm -hmm. but it was, it was actually really um, 
well-received feedback. And, and I and I honestly, I didn't disagree with any of it. And, you, you know, it doesn't make sense to anyway. But um, but for me, it was actually uh, really quite valuable to, to get that very direct feedback. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so, so you've done the MBA, obviously it had this broad range of experience running a company, um, the defense world, the defense contracting world, the university world, PhD world, and, and then, um, you know, enjoying the time there. And how did you go from there to starting Essien? You know, like, again, you had a long earn, uh, an earn out, but then you loved it and you stayed, you, you studied and, and then and then what happened from there to sort of Essien? Yeah, this is probably where the story gets interesting, actually. Um but I'll tell you what happened. Um, so I did the Harvard course in 2014 and I was um, like, you know, most people ready to take over the world. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they tell you like, the, the last few days of the course are really about sort of reintegrating you back into society. And they, they tell you, look, when you go back, you're going to want to make all these changes, but just sort of, you know, dial it back a bit take a step at a time, you know, because everyone's going to be looking at you going, oh, here's the bloke who just did the Harvard course and, you know, <laughs> look at him go. Um, so just sort of take it easy. And, um, and uh, but, you know, I was really keen to put what I'd learned uh, into practice. I felt quite confident actually um, after, a, a, after a period of time in Permian where we went through, a, I remember in 2003, it was a, it was a tough year um, and, I, and my confidence had been shaken a bit, but actually... Um, and I was kind of risk, a bit risk averse, I felt, after mm. that time. But then after having done the Harvard course, I, I felt like I was back on top again. So um, that's also partly what I mean by, you know, kind of life-changing mm. for me. Um, and then what happened was uh, I was keen to, to move into more of a national role at SMS. I had no intention of leaving. Um, it was a great company. I loved it, um, as, as did a lot of people, really, as, as, uh, and clients as well. Um, Anyway, and then Tom uh, Stianos, who was my boss, um, announced actually uh, uh, just prior to me going to Harvard, coincidentally, uh, that he was planning to retire um, after having been in the role for quite a number of years. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, I actually was really keen on uh, giving it a shot and applying for the CEO role because I felt very confident. Um, unfortunately, the timing was tough because I was... I was overseas at the time uh, at Harvard uh, while the whole process was going on, but I went through all the interviews and the, the testing, the psychometric testing and, and all the rest. But unfortunately uh, I didn't progress as far through that process as, as I would have liked. Um, and uh, most of the people internally who applied didn't. And it was clear that, you know, the board were looking for a change in direction and they, they felt the best uh, way to, to get that was to get an outside uh, person in, probably someone who had had a bit more worldly experience and so forth, um, you know, which is, is fine um, mm. and completely legitimate. So uh, anyway, but I was, I was kind of shocked and I was thinking, well, you know, I was thinking the worst. I thought someone who comes in is probably going to bring their own people in with them and, mm. and there's probably going to be limited opportunities for me. So um, I remember talking to uh, my wife, Martha, about it and and I said to her, you know, I think actually this might not be a bad time to leave, really, and, and do something different. Um, it just seemed like a logical sort of phase break in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, what I'd been doing. Um, so then the question was, well, what am I going to do? Mm. And uh, I thought about it, and there were two things that really appealed to me um, after everything I'd done. Um, I thought to myself, I'm never really probably going to, 
you know, know a, a lot more about what I'm doing than now. You know, I've probably got, you know, 10 or 15 years left in the workforce. I, I kind of feel like I've come to this point, you know, whatever I do next is, is going to, is going to define me, you know? Um, and so one of the things I thought I really could do was a turnaround. So finding a company that was in trouble and getting it performing again. And for me, you know, the bigger the company and the, the more trouble it was in for some perverse reason, that really kind of appealed to me. And I thought, you know, let's find a company that's really in the, in the, in the ditch here. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I thought that'd be great, you know, I, I turn it around, get it performing. You know, I kind of feel like I'd get a, You'd become a Harvard uh, case study, perhaps, right? If you, if you did a good <laughs> enough job. Oh, that's right. Uh, I didn't think of that, but yeah, that's you. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was kind of option A. And option mm -hmm. B was actually um, starting uh, a new company from scratch. And the more I thought about it, uh, the more um, I felt like the professional services sector and, and the industry that I operated in um, probably needed um, a new entrant uh, with a different approach. I, I felt like there were, you know, quite a, quite a few things I'd like to change uh, in the way that, you know, companies in our industry operate um, based on my own personal feedback and feedback from clients and things I'd seen that had worked well and some that hadn't. And so I decided on, on the startup. I thought that was, um, that was going to be the way to go. And then, uh, um, I had an opportunity to leave uh, SMS in, uh, when was it, 2015. Uh, there was a bit of a reorganization and um, uh, and I had the opportunity to leave then, which I took. Um, but I had the, uh, the, the golden handcuffs uh, on me uh, once again, this time to not work instead of actually to stay there. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I decided to take a break and, and uh, Martha and I um, did a big, four-wheel drive trip around Australia that we that was our dream trip really uh, that we probably couldn't have done at any other stage in our life except retirement so we did the Canning Stock route and Cape York and mm. you know the Kimberley that was great and we went over to Europe for a couple of months as well but all the time I, I knew what I wanted to do when I got back and that was to to start this new company so um so, so what was the biggest from... thing you wanted to change? So you mentioned you had some gripes about the professional service industry. You've been in it for a while. You've seen different things. You've, you've been running your own thing. You've been working sort of as a, as a business unit lead under someone else. What was the, the biggest sort of sore point for you that you thought, here's a gap, here's an opportunity, here's something that everyone else is kind of missing or ignoring? Yeah, so uh, this is interesting because, you know, we, um, my co-founders and I, um, Tin Tran and Tom Stianos, uh, there's that name again, um, <laughs> we, 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 we kind of thought about this and, um, and, there were, and, and there were initially four things that actually we thought, you know, we would like to do differently. Um, one of them was um, having a deeper commitment to our clients uh, and, and a lot of companies talk about that, but if you look at um, the way some companies operate, it's, it is quite transactional. You know, they'll, they'll shoot at anything that moves and, and it's so tempting to do that. I mean, we've been tempted as well, you know, particularly when you're starting out, you know, you, you're not necessarily as strategic in your selection of clients. You, you need the revenue in, and you want to grow at all costs and that sort of thing. So, um, but we decided actually that we wanted to be a bit more strategic and focus on fewer clients, but then really behave more like a partner for them. So become more like an external think tank for those clients. Mm -hmm. um, 
The second one was, um, we called it, um, at the time we called it um, creating joint success or shared success, which is having skin in the game in everything we do, um, whether it's uh, fixed price uh, or whether it's a success fee um, or whether it's just even offering it to clients. Um, you know, if you demonstrate your understanding of what the client's actually looking for as an outcome, even if for whatever reason it's it's still um, progressed as a, as a time and materials engagement, um, you know, you, you've at least kind of been able to demonstrate that you understand what the client's trying to achieve and, and there's uh, more kind of faith, I guess, in your ability to deliver the outcome that they're after rather than just a kind of a transactional T&M arrangement. And the third one was, um, uh, we called it trust and transparency, where we felt uh, that um, clients, through the nature of the work that we do with clients, you know, we get to understand a lot about their organisations um, and a lot of it's out in the public domain anyway, but but clients, uh, if you reflect that back, quite often don't know a lot really about small privately owned uh, boutique consultancies that do work for them. They don't really know who owns them. They don't know who the directors are. They don't know how well funded they are. They don't know what the organization's real capability is and capacity to take on larger scopes of work. Um, so there's a lot of um, faith being put in organizations and sometimes that, that faith is not always um, delivered on. And so we felt actually let's, let's demonstrate to our clients that, you know, we are always going to be open and honest with them. So we, we formed what we call the uh, client advisory board and we use that as a forum. We invite our, our um, kind of strategic clients, our larger clients, uh, on that board, and we talk to them about any aspect of our organisation. So we'll we'll present on our financials, for example, mm-hmm. um, our balance sheet, our P and L, how our company is structured in terms of uh, margins, utilisation assumptions, you know, the five levers that we that we talk about in our industry, um, you know, which are headcount, margin, utilisation, overheads, and um, uh, oh, sorry, you, um, margin includes um, how much you pay people and mm. also how much you, you charge your services out for. So they're the five sort of levers. And those five levers control, you know, pretty much every company that works in professional services. Um, and, you know, we'll talk to them about how we've sort of positioned the way we have in the market, our future growth strategies and plans, and also listen to their feedback as well. Um, you know, it's one thing to to get feedback from clients one-on-one. But when you've got a group of clients there uh, and they can all see each other um, and, you know, you're all having a conversation about how you can improve your company's delivery performance or, um, you know, what capabilities you need to build and that sort of thing, you know, it's a very uh, honest forum that that we've found uh, goes a long way to building trust uh, with our clients. So, Trust and transparency was um, the third one. Uh, and the fourth one was really around creativity, which which has become one of our core values, um, where, you know, we live in such a fast-paced world. Technology is a major disruptor and everyone, um, you know, if you're not um, excited by it, you're spooked by it. And we all are a bit of both, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's presenting us all with major opportunities. And I think you know, new ways of solving problems is is really the only way now. 
and you need to have an open mind. You need to, you know, engage with partners as we do as well. We don't try and do everything ourselves. Um, so, so coming up with creative solutions, uh, is really what sends a shiver up my spine. If we can come up with a way of doing something that, that, you know, our client hasn't, um, taken on before and then really drive that through to success. Uh, that's kind of partly what gives us a sense of purpose in what we're doing. So that's kind of how we started out. SEN was with these four points of difference in the market. Um, and then we've tried to, you know, grow on that as well. And what was the, the client feedback? And in some businesses and in consulting, especially people want to keep the front stage very separate from the backstage. So you present one image and behind the scenes, who knows, you know, how the staff are feeling, how, how things are working, um, like so the inner working. So um, were clients really excited and on board or was there a bit of that fear of the unknown? Why are you showing us all your backstage stuff or, or what, what's this involvement? None of our other consultants did that or, or were they... Um, welcome and refreshed by that transparency and like I said, partnership, skin in the game, all those things which consultants aren't always sort of known for. Yeah, I'd say definitely uh, the latter. They they were very um, excited by the prospect actually and, and a couple of them told us that they're not aware of any other company uh, operating this way. Um, that'll change, of course, um, mm. you know, like uh, every good idea. Um, you've really got a window um, before it's adopted as standard practice in the industry and this this probably will be too. Any good idea, you know, when we, we nick good ideas from our competitors and and they'll nick good ideas from us, uh, which is great because that's what takes the industry forward and, and what takes us forward as a society as well. Um, but no, they, they were very positive about it. They, um, they really relished the opportunity actually to talk about, you know, to blend it in also with their own organisations and say, you know, in, in three years' time, we foresee that, you know, we're going to need to do this and we need a partner that's going to be able to help us and, you know, the, the market might be a bit dry for that capability at the moment. So that kind of gives us a bit more insight uh, as well. Of course, when they get to the point where they need to go to market, it, the different probity rules kick in, but, but at least being able to kind of have a discussion really with a, you know, with industry, uh, senior industry people about, you know, what they're seeing and where it's all heading is, is quite... Um, quite constructive for everyone involved. Yeah, and it's obviously working well. You grew 65% last financial year, um, growing your revenue to over $16 million and becoming the number 10 fastest growing new business in Australia. So, so you've got this proposition, you've taken to the market, you've got these ideas. And again, obviously building momentum, it's going well, and then it really sort of takes off and, and sort of becomes quite successful. What was that fast growth sort of like, both the good side of being validated i suppose all your study all your ideas all your experience but also the the you know reality of then handling that growth fulfilling those promises keeping up to your values yeah it was a wild ride uh, i remember when we first started um <clears throat> and i started with uh tin tran who's uh, a co-founder he was um uh used to work uh with me at sms and uh a fantastic operator you know great um ethics hard worker uh, clients love him, very talented um, project manager as a consultant and uh, also an account director. Um, so started the company with him um, and Tom Stianos, I mentioned, who was our um, my previous CEO at SMS, um, who had retired, um, and Christy Jackson, who was um, uh, who is still with us and she's uh, an amazing, she started out as a, an office manager for us and now she's our corporate services manager. 
sharp as a tack, so hard working, just got her finger on the pulse of everything that's going on in the company. So I remember there, it was the three of us actually in Adelaide, uh, myself, Christy and Tin, on our first day, we'd just taken a lease in uh, the Regis um, uh, corporate um, shared office uh, space. We had this tiny little office that <laughs> was meant to seat three people and we ended up getting, I think, eight in there at one point. But um, <laughs> in this uh, sweatshop of, a, <laughs> of an office and uh, we were sitting in there on our first day and uh, just looking at each other and, uh, and I think I said, well, we better get on with it. And so we did. But... Um, yeah, look, I think uh, the difference between this company and, and Permian, with Permian or, and, and in fact most uh, small businesses that people start up, you know, your cash is your, your main um, limiting resource. You know, you, you, you temper your rate of growth based on the amount of cash that you've got. You know, how mm. long can I afford to not pay myself? Um, how long can we afford to pay someone who's working with me? Uh, and so you've got to be very slow and cautious when you first start out. And that was the way it was with Permian. But I, I decided with uh, Essient that uh, we weren't going to do it that way, that in fact, uh, I, th I saw that there was a huge market opportunity for us. You know, the industry had been in a bit of turmoil. Um, there'd been a lot of M&A activity. Um, some of it had been quite successful, but some of it hadn't been. And that presented opportunities uh, for us. Um, you know, it was uh, sort of disorienting for some clients and disorienting for some employees as well. So, um, and, you know, organizations win in the turns. And so I felt it was a, a big opportunity for us. So we flipped that whole equation on its head and said, okay, well, assuming we had unlimited money, how fast do we think we could grow this company based on our, our differentiated value prop, um, the, the, the types of people that we feel we could attract into the organization, and the clients and the projects and the economy and all those things. And, and we felt that um, we had a pretty good opportunity in Adelaide, Melbourne and Sydney to kick off straight away and probably Brisbane as well, but we couldn't do everything. So uh, what I did was I, I spreadsheeted and, and modeled uh, the cash flow of, um, you know, growing our organization by, two or three consultants per month in each of those regions um, and how we would do that um, and then what it would mean in terms of costs and, and the um, payment cycle and all that sort of thing uh, before, you know, we got our money and uh, worked out. Actually, it was going to cost us about 600 grand per office to spin up a new office mm -hmm. in terms of the amount of cash that we would need. And that was based on some uh, what turned out to be pretty reliable modelling um, so I knew if we were going to spin up three offices at the same time, which we did, we opened um, Adelaide in uh, um, July, August uh, 2016, and then Melbourne the following January, and then Sydney the following April. Um, so three offices really within about uh, 12 months. Um, I knew that if we were going to do all three, we were going to need probably about 1.8 million um, minimum, um, but that obviously we wouldn't let it go without... Um, you know, managing that as we went and pivoting where we needed to and whatnot. So, um, so amongst the the founders and the first employees, because we offered um, the uh, we had a we had it's we're employee owned, uh, so there's no one outside the company who owns any shares, and we offered that to our employees if they wanted to buy shares in the company, which obviously in retrospect uh, were bargain basement at the time um, and they've they've come away since then. They're worth about three times as much now as they were back at the start. 
Um, so we offered uh, for employees who wanted to come on if they wanted to buy shares as well. And, um, and between us, we raised about 1.7 million. Uh, and that was enough, we felt, to, to get these three offices going. And so away we went and, um, you know, we were off to a bit of a slow start. We sort of launched in Adelaide, I think it was about like September 2016, you know, which is probably not the best time of year to, to launch given it was just coming up to Christmas. Um, mm-hmm. So that was like lesson number one learned. Um, so we then we really sort of kicked off in anger probably the following year. Um, but one thing I remember um, was, you know, and I'll never forget this, um, was, you know, the... The employees that joined and and some of whom, you know, kicked in money as well to help capitalise us, you know, um, uh, displayed such courage, I felt. Um, a lot of them knew us, me and Tin and Tom and others. Um, but still to, you know, to um, tip in their own savings to help get a company off the ground, um, it kind of felt um, like a very courageous thing to do. Um given that, you know, we, we weren't 100% sure about how it was going to turn out. None of us were. Um, and as it, turn, as it turns out, it's, it's been great. But, but they didn't know that at the time and, and neither did I. Um, and so it kind of felt appropriate and, um, then that later on when we did our values discovery that, that courage was actually our second value. So creativity and courage uh, um, were the two I've mentioned so far. Um, and uh, so we started recruiting and started growing fairly quickly, um, Melbourne and then um, Sydney. Um, and then uh, about, I don't know, 18 months after that, I guess, um, we felt it was time to open up a Brisbane office as well. Um, and we got off to a bit of a slow start in Brisbane. Um, and then uh, then we ran into some headwinds with uh, coming up to the end of the year and, and then with uh, COVID-19. Um, but I've got to say, I mean, the Brisbane team are actually uh, killing it at the moment. Uh, they're our smallest team. Um, we've got about, yeah, just over a hundred, um, employees nationally, um, probably about almost half of those in South Australia and, um, yeah, probably about 20% each in Melbourne and Sydney and, and a small team in about 10, I think in uh, Brisbane. Um, but you know, it's been a, it's been a pretty wild ride. Um, you know, uh, you know that that 1.7 million that we had, you know, went down to about I think 350 grand at the low point. So, uh, you know, that was uh, <laughs> that was nervous for everyone. But, uh, but the underlying uh, fundamentals were good. You know, we were performing and we were managing our cash well, um, and uh, things have things have gone really great. So, um, and uh, you know, the last few years have been uh, amazing. You know, when I think about. Um, the people who have joined us, um, what a fantastic team we have. And, and, and I guess from my point of view, the impact of, of what we've uh, done with our clients, which for me is, you know, the major way that I look at how we measure our success. Um, you know, I think those other things, including financial performance, all flow from this. But, you know, the way I always look at uh, success is, is the impact that we're having with our clients on their ability to achieve the mission, their missions and, and their their uh, strategic objectives and if we can help them um, do that then um, you know our impact is high and and we'll be a will be a, a good partner uh, I, I kind of feel strongly actually that if unless you're having that impact 
um, you know, you'll never be that close partner that you strive to be with your clients. You know, you'll always be sort of kept at arm's length or relegated uh, further down the procurement chain um, that really uh, you've got to strive to, to, uh, to have that impact and to be kind of regarded for that. Yeah. But yeah, it's been a wild ride, Derek. <laughs> mm, no, it sounds like it. And just touch on that employee-owned aspect because that's been quite an interesting thing. You know, some big companies give people shares every year for tenure. Some startups will give people equity, you know, sort of in lieu of cash compensation, maybe especially a, a tech-type mm. uh, business model. Um, what usually in the consulting world, it, it's only once you reach partner at sort of the big firms, you get the opportunity to buy in and get a profit share, get equity. So what was your thought process? Obviously, you've got transparency on the client side. Was it just a natural evolution? Well, we can't be transparent with our clients and not transparent with our staff or we, it, it's just a continuation of the values or a strategic decision, like I said, to have the staff have more skin in the game as well as yourself and your clients? So what was the thought process around that? Yeah, a lot of it. Yeah, a lot of it came down to uh, alignment. You know, I talked about shared success with our clients. Well, we wanted to have the same model with our our staff and make sure that you know we always win together. We win together with our clients and we win together with our team. And I also knew that um, a lot of the people that we were trying to attract into our organisation as employees, you know, were at that stage in their career where you know who hasn't thought about going out on their own and setting up their own company or mm. um, just contracting um, as a consultant independently. Um, and, you know, we wanted those entrepreneurs in our company. And so uh, when we were setting up um, the company, uh, um, we felt that um, setting up an employee share scheme where anyone in our organization could be a shareholder, even if it's a minor shareholder, you know, and some of our people only have, you know, a few hundred shares, um, which is completely fine. It, it's sort of you know, it's, I always say to people, you know, because I get asked, you know, how many shares should I buy? And I say, it's completely up to you. I mean, um, you know, if you want to, uh, you know, if, if 100 shares will kind of make you feel like you're a part owner in the company and, and you've got a stake in the outcome, that's great. Um, if you want more, you know, we do put reasonable limits on it. But, you know, um, but we do as a principle like our more senior people to have more shares um, with the, uh, we don't make anybody buy shares except for the managing directors and myself mm-hmm. and, and Tom, our chairman, um, the managing directors, um, you know, that's part of the deal is that we, we ask them to buy shares. Tom calls it hurt money. Um, <laughs> so that if uh, things go pear shaped, they've got some skin in the game, real skin in the game. Um, but under the ASIC rules, and I, I didn't know any about anything about this, um, and you know, we quickly realised, you know, the whole thing is mired in complexity. But um, so we ended up getting EY in to help us with a lot of this. Uh, they really knew what they were doing, and, and that help was appreciated. But under the ASIC rules, you can't make more than uh, twenty offers in any twelve-month period uh, for securities in your company shares or options. Um, so they kind of realised that, you know, when you when you get people together and they want to form a company um, that uh, you, you know, you'll make deals, you know, you tip in 50 grand, I'll tip in 50 grand. We'll get this company going. And, and they, they don't mind that because they realize that's how companies start, but they only let you do that uh, for 20, 20 offers per year or no more than $2 million. So they kind of allow you to get started. But then once you go past that, um, then you need to have an offer information statement or a, um, a um, prospectus because, you know, you're considered to be selling a financial product effectively. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's a way of allowing companies to get started, but um, 
but then once you get to a certain point, you've got to have the, the governance in place, uh, which is fair. So, so we, in the first, um, you know, period after we started, we were limited in terms of, you know, the number of, um, the 2 million was never a limitation for us. We didn't, never got close to that, but, but when people wanted to buy shares, we had to kind of manage that. So we, we had this kind of spreadsheet that showed, you know, when, when uh, someone, when the window opened up for someone else to be able to buy shares. And so we, we tracked that pretty closely because we were, you know, uh, didn't want to run afoul of uh, ASIC uh, or the ATO or anything. Um, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the other um, thing, so people can buy shares um, and we've allowed them to do that. It's all subject to a shareholder agreement as well. So one kind of interesting aspect of this, uh, which I know is unique um, to us uh, uh, probably, um, is uh, the fact that we only have a single share class. So when we set the company up, we, we wanted it to be a sustainable structure so quite often companies will have multiple share classes where the original founders might have ordinary shares, which gives them a controlling as well as an economic interest in the company. Um, but then maybe employees only have an economic interest and then they might be subject to certain conditions and da 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 da. So you end up with these multiple share classes. Well, we, we decided that we were just um, for, you know, um, equity really uh, across all of our team that we were only going to have a single share class and, and the rules around that and, um, and how the uh, shares can be um, uh, bought or sold um, through these two windows that we have a year, just after we adjust the share price. All of those rules are baked into the shareholders agreement, which everyone needs to sign. Um, the other kind of um, um, uh, financial instrument, I guess, that that people can use is um, or get access to is options, mm-hmm. which, uh, as you know, is the right to buy a share at a certain price within a certain time. Um, and we've reserved options for uh, performance bonuses. And again, we're limited to the 20 per year, um, which, which has been a, a limitation. Um, uh, but if, if our employees would like to take, you know, half of their annual bonus in the form of options, then we've allowed them to do that. And uh, that, that also is a way of them getting access to, um, equity in the company, but without having to outlay uh, for shares. Um, a lot of companies used to issue shares, as you mentioned at mm. the start, but uh, about 10 years ago, uh, the government changed the rules on those um, where it meant that, you know, when um, performance rights were granted like shares, um, you had to pay tax on the benefits straight away. So shares, share issues sort of went on the nose fairly quickly after that because you'd effectively have to sell half your shares in order to pay your tax bill. <laughs> um, whereas options for a startup company are treated differently. And as long as you own less than 10% of the company, you can receive startup options and, um, and they're not taxed on grant um, only when you go to sell them um, or if you exercise them and then you sell the shares that's a, a tax event, not before then. So they're kind of more tax effective. Mm. And, and so what was the impact on the staff? Were some people a bit reluctant? They don't know that they're just looking for sort of a job and, and that, or maybe they haven't got a lot of savings, but other people, like you said, they were at that partner stage or that they're sort of starting their own thing. And it was a, a sort of halfway between the risk of being in a big structure, being on their own kind of, or, you know, like mixed reactions, positive. What was yeah, sort of yeah, the staff's um, feedback? Yeah, it was quite varied, actually, Derek. We had um, 
quite a range of different uh, views, and uh, but we've got you know almost half of our people have got some sort of security interest in the company. So I'd I'd say you know judging based on that, the scheme's been a success. Um, but the way I explain it to people is you know it's like you've got control of this lever that goes all the way from employee to owner, and you can find your own sweet spot really. I mean if you just want to have a small parcel of shares, that's great. Uh, if you want to go, you know, all in, if you want options, if you want to sort of, you know, uh, and you're a senior person and, and, you know, it all seems pretty reasonable, uh, then we'll support that as well. So it's actually allowed people, I think, to to kind of, um, you know, figure out what works for them. Um, but we do um, put one stipulation, which is that, you know, um, employees have to pass probation before we do that. Um and so it then becomes a, a kind of a, a time-gated um, benefit as well, which is good. Um, but, yeah, a lot of people have, have taken it up. And some people are, are really, you know, super keen to try and uh, to get more shares and whatever. But we've always found, you know, every six months now we have this window just after we adjust the share price, which is um, done externally now. We get an external valuation. And then we adjust the share price and then we have a two-week window where if anyone wants to buy or sell shares, they can put in an expression of interest and then we we kind of try and match up buyers with sellers. Um, we've always had more buyers than sellers every time we've done that So mm-hmm. since we started the company. So I kind of feel like, you know, sh- the shares are, are valued um, by employees and, and having them is is appreciated. Yeah, that sounds really good. So stepping back a bit from consulting directly and from your firm, what trends do you see in entrepreneurship, new business formation in Australia more generally? You know, what are a lot of Australian companies doing well? Where are they maybe um, leaving room on the table for growth or better performance? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I'm not a, a, a kind of a worldly guy when it comes to, you know, what everyone's doing in the sector, but I guess my own observations are, you know, the world is becoming a, a smaller place now. We all we all feel that, you know, culturally we're, we're kind of aligning more. Um, and I think the same probably goes for opportunities as well. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, just because we're in Australia, I think, uh, or in, in Adelaide in my case, I don't think that makes a lot of difference in terms of, you know, your access to opportunities. Um, you know, we all have access to a global market now, uh, which is good. So, um, so it doesn't matter where you are. I think, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, technology is a, uh, a disruptive driver of, of pretty much most of the work that we do in our company. Um, you know, clients are interested in how they can leverage technology in order to uh, help their organisations um, better perform um, and or, or, or access new markets or access um, new, or put, you know, put out new products or capabilities um, you know, whatever they're doing. Um, and so I think, you know, um, you've got to understand too, like we, you know, we can't be experts at everything and we know that in our company as well. So I think these days, you know, you've got to be good at, at partnering. Um, you know, we have a, a number of partners that we work with um, and that we also bring to clients as well. So I think the kind of old model about, you know, we can do everything. Um, please don't talk to any of our competitors. <laughs> Just give all the work to us and then we'll figure it out. You know, that model's kind of broken now. That doesn't really work anymore. I think clients, you know, appreciate the uh, the transparency and authenticity when you say, you know what, well, actually we can't do everything, but 
there's a partner that we've worked with that can do this bit and we'll do this bit and you'll do this bit and, and together that's actually a pretty good consortium that'll get the job done. You know, that's what they appreciate. So I think you've got to be good at partnering these days. Uh, I guess the other thing, um, you know, in terms of um, uh, the uh, entrepreneurs that we're seeing uh, out there is, is the diversity of, of entrepreneurs. Um, you know, I've, I've always been a... I mean, I consider myself unashamedly a, a feminist. I, I believe in uh, equality um, uh, in all dimensions, really. Um, and I'm proud, very proud, that, that we're a diverse organisation at Essien. Um, and I, I kind of consider, you know, our organisation really to be a reflection of the world that we live in. The world is diverse, and so it kind of makes sense to me that, you know, why wouldn't we be diverse? Um, and it's not because we've, you know, tried to look for... Um, that diversity, we, we do we do try and hire people who are different because I think, you know, if you're trying to solve, you know, the toughest problems um, that we've got, um, you know, you need, you don't need, you know, your organisation to sort of be attack of the clones. You, you need it to be uh, full of people who have, you know, really interesting, different backgrounds. Some people who are really creative, some people who've got legal backgrounds, some people have done psychology. You know, we, we did a survey and we've got about 25 different professional backgrounds in amongst our team of just over 100. Um, so very diverse from that point of view. Um, we're also about 50-50 uh, in terms of uh, gender balance. But um, again, uh, we don't, you know, that's not something that we've uh, engineered. That's just the way it is. And And I think, you know, when, when you get to the stage where you have um, uh, a kind of a, a pretty good uh, culture, a supportive culture and a, and a good gender balance, I think, you know, I don't, you know, I don't ever want to take it for granted, but I, I kind of feel like um, that it's, it's more easily sustainable now that, um, that we've established that. I, I think other organisations who have been around for a while who are trying to still on, are still on that journey, I think have probably got their work a bit more cut out for them. Um, so I think we're seeing, you know, more uh, women entrepreneurs. I, I read a survey uh, recently that I think there were about 42% of entrepreneurs in Australia now are female. You know, we won an award, um, remember back in uh, 2018, um, uh, the LinkedIn Top Startups Award, uh, where we came third. Um, so it's not an award that we entered. They they just uh, run an algorithm over LinkedIn and LinkedIn tell you that you won this award. <laughs> um, so we came third. But the, the companies I remember that came first and second that year were were Canva. Um, they came first, um, you know, which is the online designing um, uh, system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Melanie Perkins is the CEO there. And Expert 360, uh, they came second. And Bridget Loudon is the CEO there. So they're both led by women. So I think that's great to see. Um, you know, I've always been a, a strong proponent um, of um, sharing stories around uh, success stories, particularly where, you know, there, there's um, sort of unconscious biases that we're trying to change. I think, you know, people, um, particularly oldies like me, need to be reprogrammed a bit with with stories and so I've, I've always tried to do that um, you know in like in my International Women Day post, post of last year um, talking about you know Angela Merkel and Jacinda Ardern and and all of the, the great stuff that was happening um, so anyway it's great to see I guess that that's one of the other themes that we're seeing in entrepreneurship is there are definitely a lot more 
uh, female entrepreneurs, which is what we would expect to see. Um, I think the other thing too, probably, I mean, the last one that, that occurs is, um, you know, uh, a social conscience or a social sort of foundation for entrepreneurship that a lot of people now, you know, are, you know, not just wanting to create a company, they're, they're, they're very um, aware of, of and, and purposeful about what their company does uh, and the impact that it's going to have on the world. Um, and I think, you know, it's great to see. I'm actually, you know, <laughs> a lot of people, you hear these stories, a lot of people in my generation are always saying, you know, oh, they're, you know, you youngins, you know, you don't know <laughs> what you've got. And, you know, but I, honestly, I think the world is in great hands. You know, I, I have been nothing but impressed with um, the younger generation that I've seen come through. I think, you know, people are, uh, are truly motivated by wanting to make the world a better place, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, economically homeless, the environment, uh, mental health, you, you name it, you know, there's, there's, there's curing disease, um, you know, there's um, helping the underprivileged, um, you know, there are so many great social causes that um, people are, are focused on as, as part of the social purpose of their company now, which, which I think is, is, so I think those social values are really playing a part as well in entrepreneurship. Yeah, and see. you're mentioning obviously young people and people today. Maybe so. Maybe someone who's 18, 20 year old, uh, 20 years old today. What advice would you give them? Um, obviously, again, you've straddled multiple worlds and different, like I said, academic, corporate, um, you know, government, uh, military, um, overseas, um, running your own company. What um, advice would you give a, a sort of 20 year old today? Again, maybe like you said, somebody's not from a traditional interest or, or background in um, consulting and but just, you know, looking back and what tips would you give them? Yeah, look, <laughs> I just try to think when you're asking that question, what I would have loved to have known back then that I, I know now that I didn't know then. Um, look, I, I think probably the main one would be don't try and do it all on your own. You know, I, I remember when uh, starting um, Permian, um, you know, I, I did feel at times like I could have used uh, another business partner in the business, mm -hmm. um, someone whose skills complemented my own. You know, all these things I learned about marketing and finance and everything else, a lot of that I've just sort of picked up along the way. But but I think, um, you know, just because you're good at one thing doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you know everything you know about how to grow a company, um, access new markets, all that sort of thing. So, so taking risks is good, but... I guess my advice would be try and build an understanding of what you're good at um, and what you're not and and also read widely. Um, you know, knowledge is, is kind of like an insurance policy. Um, you know, you, you'll get to recognise, um, like I did talked about with the pattern matching, you know, you'll recognise situations and how you can respond to them if you, if you have read about them and understand them. Um, finding a mentor, that's always good. No one ever says no uh, when you ask them to be your mentor. Uh, you know, and people, people love that. Um, and so, you know, if, if it's a particular area that you want to understand more about, or just, uh, even, you know, having a cup of coffee with a senior person in the industry every now and again, but yeah, I think, I think not doing it all on your own, you know, that, that's a big difference. I think when we started Essien, you know, we thought, you know, we're not going to be amateur lawyers. We're going to get a, a law firm to be our partner. We're not going to be amateur accountants. You know, we're going to get an accounting firm to be our partner. Mm. You know, we're not going to try and design our own share scheme and, and employee options plan. We're going to get EY to do it because that's what they do. They're good at it. 
Um, so I think by by having all of these uh, partners, it's it's made us, it's allowed us to sort of focus on what we what we do best. I think the other, I mean, the other part of that too is you just want to, sh- I think, share the dream and the journey with with someone who gives you energy and motivation. Um, you know, don't try and do it all on your own. Mm. And, and so mm. to finish up, what does the next five to 10 years look like for Essien? Obviously, um, still early days, a lot of good success, a lot of good mm. momentum, good things happening. What's sort of the, the high level vision or goals or direction for the next sort of five or 10 years? Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll continue to grow. The last few months have slowed us down a bit, obviously, but but our plan is to continue to grow um, within the markets that we're in. So Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. We you know we see particularly. I mean, Adelaide now we're we're coming up to sixty people, so you know we're 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 getting quite large for the size of that market. You know, about a million and a half people or so. Um, but we've still got plenty of uh, growth potential in Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane. Um, so ge- uh, geographically in the new markets, you know, we're thinking about, you know, possibly Canberra, Perth, Auckland uh, as being places where we could um, where we could expand. We want to also expand our um, capabilities and our service offerings um, to sort of, uh, in, particularly in areas that are sort of adjacent to our current offerings. Um, we will probably um, look at uh, merging or acquiring companies, particularly where they're a good cultural fit. For us, that's very important. Um, it gets back to what I was saying before about, you know, not just looking at the financial synergies, but but also um, thinking about um, the cultural fit. So, you know, they might be partners that we've worked with that we, that we think we could do more together if we had a closer relationship. Um, probably... You know, one of the, the the risks that most people identify in, in growing companies is, you know, how are you going to preserve the culture as you grow? And for mm-hmm. us, that's uh, that's going to be critical. You know, we, we we decided when we set this company up, you know, we didn't want to you know be a, have a big playbook of rules and processes and procedures and all that. We we preferred to sort of anchor to our values and and just trust our people to do the right thing as we grew. We felt that would allow us to scale more quickly. Uh, and still preserve our culture than it would um, if we had this big playbook. So, um, you know, finding ways to make sure we always uh, advance and promote, you know, the people who are role models, for example, of, of the kind of behaviours and the values that we that we see are, are important to our organisation. Um, making sure we, we never forget what success looks like to us. You know, it gets back, as I say, to that impact. Um, and I, and I think, you know, the other things will, will flow from that. If we've got a sense of purpose in what we're doing, uh, then I think, um, you know, we'll be successful in other ways as well. Um, so, we'll, I mean, we're about, you know, we've got about um, 120 clients uh, that we've worked with um, uh, so far. You know, I can see us probably, you know, in five years' time, we'll probably be, you know, maybe uh, four or 500 employees with maybe 250 clients. I think I'd like to see us grow our number of employees more than our number of clients. Um, but all of these sort of avenues of growth, these dimensions of growth I've talked about, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't just say that because growth is, um, you know, kind of a, a measure of success um, because you, you've got to be aware of vanity metrics uh, in our industry. You know, people talk about revenue and so forth. Um, but for me, you know, growth brings opportunities. It brings opportunities for our team. It brings opportunities for our, our 
our shareholders. Um, and I think it also brings opportunities for our clients. So, um, yeah, I think growth, growth is good. And uh, it's difficult to stay the same size in our industry as well. You know, you've got to kind of grow or go, really. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're going to keep growing and, uh, um, and uh, always listen to our employees. You know, they've got great ideas. Um, in fact, most of our good ideas have come from our team. I'd love to take credit for them, <laughs> but <laughs> I can't. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess you've created that environment, like you said, so people are bought in, you know, literally and sort of metaphorically and, you know, keen and passionate and they feel their ideas will be heard. So that's sort of, I guess, half the battle to, to get people to, to give, be confident and willing to give those great ideas and um, not discourage. That's it, yeah. Yeah, well, it's always hard to, to execute on some of them because, you know, like most fast-growing small businesses, you know, we're, we're, at, we're trying to build the plane as we're flying it <laughs> and, um, you know, we've got, client work which is important we've got our own staff development as well and training which is important we've got company initiatives that we're working on uh which are important you know all these things are important and um it kind of feels like that sometimes there aren't enough hours in the day to do all of them but um yeah we've just got to kind of strike that balance and hopefully we'll be right <laughs> no sounds good do you have any final thoughts words comments you'd like to leave the audience with oh no, I can't think of anything. <laughs> We've said it all. Uh, just, uh, you know, I think, I think, okay, I think my only other observation is I think it's an exciting time, you know, to be alive. Um, we think about how far we've come as a society, you know, in the last, you know, 50 years and even in the last five years, five or 10 years, really. And the fact that things are picking up in pace, you know, I, I, uh, I think the amount of change we're going to see, and I've seen this written many places, you know, over the next 20 years is probably going to be the as same as the last 200 years, you know. So strap yourselves in, everyone. It's going to be an interesting ride, an exciting ride. Great note to finish on. Thank you so much, Stephen, for your time. Good on you, Derek. See you, mate. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.